the ideal relationship from a professional services standpoint is sit back and they send you leads and you just work on them. But that's that's not what they're looking for. That, that's not a partner that's going to last very long. You actually have to know how to help them close more business to be able to get on the phone with the sales team as well as the client and be able to explain to the client why this is a good decision and what it is about the other applications that that application can do a better job at for the client. Dirt listeners, we are thrilled to have with us today a trailblazer in the realm of technology and business optimization, Noah Burke. As the co-founder of OBO, Noah has been instrumental in helping organizations maximize their technology investments, bridging the gap between sales and marketing teams, and orchestrating the flow of information through automation. My favorite part of today's dirt is when we dig into why Noah is such an advocate of people-focused solutions and how his innovative approach has empowered many businesses to streamline workflows and deliver superior customer experiences. This is the Dirt Podcast, and I am your host, Jim Barnish. To support us, please check out our sponsor, Orchid Black, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And now... Excited to bring Noah into the dirt. All right, Noah, let's dig right in. Who is Noah Burke? Awesome. Well, uh, in in the professional world, I'm one of the two co-founders of uh, OBO. Uh, and uh, from a, from a personal side, uh, you know, I just kind of enjoying life. Uh, I got hobbies. I, I like plants. That's one thing you'll learn about me. And, uh, especially hydroculture. It's a hobby of mine where we actually grow plants and expand the clay. Um, and nice. so we actually now give them away as gifts at our company. We'll actually ship them out to people because it's cooler swag to give away plants than it is to give away pens. Um, so, uh, you know, what else would you like to know? That's funny. We uh, we give out orchids, being that you know, orchid black is the so it's. it's I mean, uh, this was meant to be this conversation, Jim. You know. You guys give out orchids. We give out plans. Hashtag grow differently with OBL. Let's uh, go. You know, that's how we do things. And most people kill plants, but you can't kill these guys. All you do is simply just don't ever let it dry out. Uh, <laughs> literally, it comes in a glass container like this. You just fill water and just never let it dry. You can water this thing every day if you wanted to. Cool. Uh, no, so, Noah, Noah and Jim, yeah. the botanists of business. How about yes. that? <laughs> All right, cool. So um, yeah, while we're on Oboe, can you, uh, can you just walk us through the inception of OBO and the yeah. uh, primary motivation behind establishing it? Yeah. Um, so I never actually wanted to start another company. Um, you know, I'd, I'd worked at kind of I had two other startups. I did uh, one more successful than the other, and I was pretty content. You know, I'll call it fat and happy. I was doing I had a sales career and selling software, uh, and I was enjoying it, making really great money. And um, my now co-founder Rob, um, he and I worked together in a previous company. We always stayed in touch, and honestly, he was the smartest. He is one of the smartest people I know, if not the smartest person I know. Uh, and uh, we, we'd always been talking business ideas for years. And um, as we were discussing these ideas, we kept trying to figure out, well, what would we do? Well, what's, what's going on in the marketplace? And a uh, previous startup I was working at sold data solutions. And I saw an opportunity for sales and marketing alignment. Didn't really quite sure what that meant or how that was going to work and operate. 
Uh, and, you know, Rob is interested in doing something. And, and two of my best friends run a uh, marketing agency. And they're like, hey, guys, like, if you want to do something, we'll support you. Uh, and we'll, we'll help you grow it. And uh, so two of my best friends, uh, along with Rob and myself, we decided to start uh, OBO. Uh, and uh, they, they, they gave us, they said, hey, listen, go do it. We'll support you guys. And next thing you know, we, we have a company. Uh, and, uh, you know, I quit my other job and earned, you know, left that. And, and uh, we started OBO to do sales and marketing alignment, which really started off just doing outbound email marketing. Uh, because that was the very first thing we could do that would generate results for clients with low hanging fruit. Back when we were doing it, no one was really doing this. Like nowadays, I'm pretty sure you get an email a day about someone who's like, Hey, we'll help you with lead gen. Uh, but when we did it, it was new at the time. Uh, and so really it was just about me wanting to be business partners with Rob. And I was kind of like, whatever you want to do, Rob, I'll, I'll figure out how to sell it. You just make it. Nice. Uh, nice. and that, that's been our relationship ever since. So how, how did yours and, and Rob's personal journey influence what is now the ethos, uh, or it was then too, I suppose, that in general, the ethos of, of OBO? Well, you know, we, we set out to build a professional services consulting firm. Um, they're, they're, in some sense, easier to get off the ground, but harder to scale. Um, and we know in the marketplace, there's a need for professional services to help organizations operate better. And, um, we also want to work with people we like and what better than starting your own company and to pick and choose the people you get to work with on a regular basis. And so when we start out, we simply said, let's just have the best people possible to deliver the best services for our clients, whatever that service may be in the end. Um, and let's do a better job than everyone else in the marketplace. So there's no doubt that we are the best. Um, and so we've taken this model and attitude that we are the best at what we do and we prove it each and every day with our, um, uh, awards we've received or the recognition we've gotten over the years, uh, the people we hire, um, to make sure like, Hey, we're delivering excellent service for our clients, helping them achieve the results they're looking for. So I think it was a combination of wanting to be the best, work with the best and have fun with what we're doing. Awesome. Awesome. And so OBO is built, um, Correct me if I'm wrong on on optimizing HubSpot, Salesforce, and Monday.com, right? Essentially, that's correct. Absolutely, we we like to say we we are the intersection of people, process, and systems. Um, most organizations simply have a hard time. One, unlike us, who we've done over 450 client engagements, we've practically seen it all. Most companies who are setting up a new CRM, market automation, customer service, maybe this is the first time they're doing it. Maybe they've only worked on a couple of these projects over the years. So they just don't really have a good indication of what's possible inside these systems, what's the best way of doing it. So we shorten that learning curve and the setup process to way less time than it would take them trying to do it on their own. And it, and is it all specific to those three platforms, Salesforce, HubSpot, Correct. Monday? Now, we integrate geez, probably hundreds of, with hundreds of different applications we've integrated with over the years. And we use other third-party software, low-code, no-code software to help us with these integrations. Um, but yeah, those are the three we primarily focus on. And most of our clients have at least two or more of those applications. So there's a lot of cross-sell, off-sell for us. Um, so our ideal client would have you know, combination of HubSpot and Salesforce. Sometimes they just have HubSpot. Sometimes they just have Salesforce. Sometimes they just have Monday. But where our niche in the marketplace is knowing how all three applications work. So you're able to go to one company to basically mm-hmm. have one company support those three applications for you. 
how how are those platforms to work with from a from a partner channel perspective? Do they all kind of work the same? Do they have their own no. kinda, you know unique nature? How, Hubs- how does that work? HubSpot has invested a fortune into their partnership program. And it shows by the fact they have I think seven thousand partners worldwide, um, and they really go out of their way to help partners be successful. Um, I would say the same thing for Monday. Monday is also investing heavily in their partnership channel. And they all, Monday and HubSpot especially, they view us as the future where they need companies and come in and help people implement and set up these technologies. And they simply view us as the future there. Um, I think where Salesforce is, is their, their big market opportunity are the large enterprises. Um, thus, it's the large partners to spend the most time with versus the smaller partners. We have much less interaction with Salesforce than we do with our HubSpot reps and Monday reps. Got it. Yeah. I mean, that that makes sense. How, how does, how are those particular companies evolving? Maybe not just from a partner perspective, but you know, from a, from a technology and systems and people perspective. Uh, you know what? I, I, to this day, I'm happy with the decisions we've made partnering with these organizations. Because anytime you decide to partner with an organization, it's a tremendous amount of time and investment to know their applications and know their software and build yourself in the community. Mm-hmm. All three have done a fantastic job being the leaders in the marketplace. You can go to G2 Crowd, Captera, any of these places, and you'll see that they're the leaders. And it makes it easy to partner with an organization that's growing, that's having you know great success. Um, now, from time to time, they compete against each other. Monday, less so against Salesforce and HubSpot, but HubSpot and Salesforce tend to. In some sense, they're also frenemies because someone may have HubSpot Marketing Hub, uh, but they'll have Salesforce Salesforce because they have those complex needs that require Salesforce versus the HubSpot for one reason or another. Um, but I think all three of those technologies, that's your best of breed. There's not anything else out there I'd recommend to a client who wants CRM, uh, customer service, marketing automation, or project management software. Those are the three that you're going to look at. Are there any situations um, or challenges as you guys evolved and your partnership evolved um, that um, was a little bit difficult with one or more of your partners um, in, you know, interacting and and growing in your early days that others can learn from? Well, you have to figure out how to help them sell. Um, You know, you, the ideal relationship from a professional services standpoint is sit back and they send you leads and you just work on them. But that's that's not what they're looking for. That That's not a partner that's going to last very long. You actually have to know how to help them close more business to be able to get on the phone with the sales team as well as the client and be able to explain to the client why this is a good decision and what it is about the other applications that that application can do a better job at for the client. Um, and so we've taken it very seriously, the selling motion and working with our partners to help them generate more revenue, the more revenue can generate the partners, the better off and the better they're going to be for you as a partner itself, the more stuff they're going to send you. They see that this is a two way street. Um, so it's really kind of refining and defining that selling motion, that selling process to be successful with, with the partners. Um, and that also is where the challenge, um, is uh, when you work with partners is how do you fit into their mold? I think a lot of professional service organizations by their nature are not sales organizations um, because they're led by a consultant. You know, it's the old adage, Hey, I know how to do this. And I go, you know, put out a shingle and start doing it myself, but they, they're not business people. They're not sales people. They know how to do the work. They don't necessarily know how to sell the work or how to work with the clients because there's so much more in professional services than simply just doing it. You know, I think um, 
a great book out there um, is Danny Meyer setting the table. Like there's a difference between service and hospitality. You know, mm-hmm. service is coming out and delivering the food on time. Hospitality is how you made them feel while actually delivering that steak and the experience they had. And I think the same thing applies to professional services organizations is how you made the client feel throughout that journey. Um, are they constantly having to come to you and say, well, what's the status? Where are things going? What's happening next? Or are you being proactive and saying, hey, here's what I see. Here are my recommendations. By the way, I know you didn't ask for it, but here's the latest update. Mm-hmm. And, and, and applying that across the board to partners as well as clients really separates one from the next. So let's start with the partners because I want to focus on on both. You mentioned a lot of really awesome gold that I want to I want to pull out a little more. So sure. um, on the partner side, as you guys were growing, um, you know, obviously um, a huge benefit to be able to get some leads um, or a lot of leads through partner channels. Not everyone has that opportunity. But um, did you ever feel a, an over reliance on the partner to to drive customer acquisition? Absolutely. Um, so even to this day, the majority of our leads come directly from our partners, which is fantastic. They just like imagine getting a referral. You have the highest close rate on the deals that are being referred to versus you know doing cold outreach. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a point in time that there's only so many leads you're going to get at any given time. That if you're going to scale and grow the organization, you have to develop your own acquisition channels, client acquisition channels. So we have made investments into essentially a business development rep to go out to be able to find our ideal customer, do the outreach, personalize the communications and set up meetings for us. So we're not necessarily reliant strictly on the partners. Then we control our own destiny. So it's big for us to control our own destiny. Now that does not mean, you know, essentially not putting the effort into maintaining grow our partnership relationships. In fact, that's my number one objective. It's like killing off your cash cow to focus on some other opportunity. You have to focus on the partner relationships and maintain good relationships with the partners, participating in events, uh, meeting with them, being communicative. So in my company, we have people who are designated for HubSpot, Monday, and Salesforce. And their job is to maintain and grow those partnerships for us. When when you look at um, indirect, meaning partner versus direct, and some of the things that you've done to not be entirely reliant on partners. What sure. what are some of the customer direct customer acquisition strategies that you guys have experimented with to, to drive success? Well, I, I think first and foremost, you have to know who your target market is in your ICP, your ideal customer profile. And even when we first launched our program, we were not 100% sure what that message is and what's going to resonate uh, with the audience. Um, and then you have to be very clear and concise with your outbound message. What is what problem are you solving for and how you're going to solve it for the client? And you have to be able to convey it in a few sentences or less. Um, and you have to hit them in the right place, right time. Majority of the customers out there are not ready for your services. You know, they're not in the buying decision. But I think the old adage goes one out of 10 people are ready to make a purchase. And you just have to be able to hit them at the right place, right time as they're starting that search or in the middle of the search for services that you offer. Um, and so it took us several, I mean, I think for the first three months of launching our uh, business development program, we got like one or two leads in the first three months. Um, and then the following three months, I think we had like 50 or 60 when we finally oh. nailed the message. Um, and we're just now closing our first few deals, um, which we've uh, been been generating, uh, which is awesome to see. But it takes longer when you do outbound channels. Uh, you, you may be working an inbound referral can close way faster than an outbound channel that may take two to three times as long. 
So when was it just the message that allows you to 50x the the outcome or was any of it message like and target audience? Tar- target audience. So okay. it was a combination of the message we were we were delivering as well as the target audience we were trying to reach out to. And was this um you know was this all email outreach ads email and LinkedIn. Um, we've tried ads, minimal success. Um, it's all literally LinkedIn outreach and email outreach, LinkedIn, Um, organic outreach, LinkedIn, organic outreach, not using in mail, sending out the message, personalizing each and every one of them. Um, there's two ways to personalize. You can personalize based upon the segment you're reaching out to, or you can personalize each individual message. Sometimes we personalize each individual message. But that can take five to 10 minutes per client. So we devote, it's kind of the 80 20 rule. 20% of the outreach is super, super personalized because those are our ideal fit. Those are actually ones we're closing right now um, versus 80%, which is, you know, they just fall into a bucket and you can send them a pretty similar message to each one. So you can yeah. set, you can either build your list based upon a segment or based upon an individual. That's awesome. So when, um, when you look at some of, uh, some of the customer acquisition tacti- tactics that, that worked as well as they have. How long did that testing go about where you went from the one to 50? Was that just, it sounded like it was only a couple months? Uh, minimum three months. I, th- I think we got started in September, uh, end of September, beginning of October. So actually four months, but it wasn't until after the new year to be actually start generating leads from it. So, and honestly, it's very defeating because if you put the person in charge of it, like, especially someone who's used to getting results and they're not getting results, the number one thing you have to do is be their cheerleader and say, listen, I believe in you, you'll get there. But that means you got to measure activity and you have to actually manage the person. You can't just sit there and just wonder what they're sending out. You got to look at the message, spend some time, get some brain focus to it. And so say, okay, here's the message. Here's the pieces that we're working on. Here's what it's looking like. Okay, what messages do you have coming up? What audiences do you hit? And actually start tracking everything. Um, so we actually use Monday. We actually use Monday.com to track the campaigns that we're launching. Um, and then I have a separate board within HubSpot to actually track the leads that are being generated strictly from our demand generation efforts. So that person actually has their own board, their own dashboard, their own reporting, their own pipeline. Um, and then it's up to the uh, our actual um, uh, sales team to then convert those leads into opportunities once you know they've gone past the initial meeting. So, what are some of those metrics or, or measures that that um, are the activity metrics you speak of? So, I have a very uh, I look at my dashboard almost every day, multiple times a day. Um, the number one thing I first look at is MQLs. You know, how many MQLs were current marketing qualified leads are we currently generating that week? So each week I say, okay, how many do we generate week over week? That gives me one metric. The other metric is month over month. Like I know the number of leads we need to be able to hit to generate revenue. The third metric, which is the most common, is what I call hot companies, the clients who can close them in about 30 days. And then what that total backlog amount is versus stuff that has already been closed and the rolling day, 30 day average of what's been closed. That tells me the health of the organization. If I see a certain backlog amount in pipe, then I know we're going to hit our numbers. But if I see that drop, I also generally know, okay, we're going to need to hustle here to be able to hit our numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it starts with top of the funnel activity coming in. Then it leads all the way down to what currently we think can actually close. And then what does that equate to in terms of revenue potentially? 
And what are the what are the numbers on the activity side that you guys have as a range of expectation before getting to MQL? Yeah, um, so that's a really good question. So that comes on the outreach. Um, so there's two ways we get, like I mentioned earlier, we get leads, actually multiple different ways we get leads. We get leads from the partners. We get leads from people visiting our website. We get leads from uh, traveler clients, people who go from one client to the next and bring us on, which actually a lot of deals we close simply just based upon that. The longer you're in business, the more likely you're going to continue to see that flywheel happening as you do great work for clients and they move from one company to the next. Um, and so the, the metrics I'm generally looking at is, um, if it's on the sales development side, it's the number of campaigns launched and the number of people in each of those campaigns. So sometimes we have campaigns as little as 60 people because that's a highly personalized communication campaign where we're going in, we're saying, hi, I can see that you're using Salesforce HubSpot. I see that you've been in this position for six months. You know, we would love to set up a time to chat with you, how we can help you, you know, succeed or whatever else that message is going to be. Um, sometimes we, and we look for people with job changes, whatever the case is. So we'll have different campaigns set up. I want to see how many campaigns are running, how many messages are going out at any given time, at least on the outbound side. On the inbound side, I'm generally looking at the total quantity of leads. Like I know as long as we're hitting 30 marketing qualified leads a month, we're doing pretty good at any given time. Um, and our team's been exceeding that for the last six, seven months, um, in terms of that. And, and now we're also exceeding those leads are now also coming directly from our outbound and, uh, outbound business development channels, which is adding to the leads we have from partners and referrals and traveler or clients and people hitting our website. Um, and so it's, it's been great to see at first we were conflating. Um, all appointments set from outbound as if it was a marketing qualified lead, but they're not. You have to first mm-hmm. qualify them and then you can move them into the funnel. And that kind of skewed our numbers for a few months there. So we were just getting so many coming in. But I'm like, I started looking through the numbers and saying, not every one of these is a good fit. These should not be counted. That's when we changed our criteria. Yeah, got it. Got it. And so I've, if this is a little bit of a new effort. So you haven't really been able to uh, see how the direct approach that you guys are doing connects to customer retention compared to, you know, how you've traditionally sold, right? Don't yeah. We so, don't have the data on that yet. Um, I mean, it's been about seven months now, maybe longer. No, I guess longer than that. Five, four, yeah. And, oh, geez, nine months um, uh-huh. that we've been working on this. And uh, our investment, we said we want to see a year and we're already seeing it pay off. We're closing clients already. Um, and we also know it's a flywheel effect. So the longer you do it, the more stuff, like we're also realizing you can reach back out to client, not realizing we've always known it. We can reach back out to clients who say, now, now, not now, but later. And yeah. you can drum up a lot of business like that. Like I think a lot of professional service organizations forget people will forget you. They won't even remember your name. No, right. like no offense to anyone, but like, I'm not going to remember you after like three months. Right. Like you have a thousand emails. How many times do you like, Hey, what was that company who reached out to me? <laughs> Like you're trying to search through your emails, like come up with a name. Like yeah. that happens to me all the time, especially if you're in an executive level position, you're constantly getting bombarded all the time. And to remember everyone you spoke to, and it was like four or five months ago, you're like, oh, I know they're in this industry. And I, so if you're not doing follow up and outreach, you're missing the boat. So, so what does that look like for you guys? Is it like nurturing campaigns if something goes lead? Like what, what does that, so what does for, that look like? 
for us, there's different ways of doing nurturing campaigns. You can have marketing run them or you can have sales run them. I like to have my own sales team run my nurturing campaigns. So anyone they built relationships with and communicated with, um, they set up their own list. Um, and then they will automatically send out emails based upon, you know, the client decided to choose someone else or they said not ready. They'll set up their own email sequences and outreach sequences directly in HubSpot to do nurture themselves. I think we'll add everyone to our newsletter just so we stay top of mind. And our newsletter is strictly informational. So I don't have like a separate campaign. Now, with enough volume in an organization, you should best practices, you know, so I guess the shoe cobbler, really making shoes for everyone else except for yourself. You should set up your own individualized campaign. Like here's my Salesforce, here's my HubSpot, here's my Monday. But even at the volume of leads we're getting, which is significant, it's still not so significant. I can't have my own team run these nurture campaigns because they can then personalize the communication going out to that customer. Sure. And, oh, I remember you say not now, but later. So I'd want to reach back out. Well, they remember what was said and they can put that in the email. Um, so I tend to think the best, it's better off coming from sales teams. Now, when you start getting the volumes in the hundreds of leads a month, Marketing generally is going to have to take over a lot of those depending upon how big your sales team is and how busy they are um, in terms of nurture campaigns. But yes, you should absolutely be nurturing your customers, whether it's one-on-one individual emails or via marketing, depending upon the organization. Sure, sure. Earlier in our discussion, you mentioned um, the the basis and foundation of OBO and just in general, the importance of aligning people and process and systems. Um, yes. can you share a case where, where that, that alignment that you guys drove uh, led to significant improvements or outcomes for a client? I mean, it's almost like which client do we want to take first? Um, I'm not going to necessarily mention names on this, but, um, the number one problem that companies have is not that technology can't do what they want to get done, but they don't have necessarily thought through the process of the people challenge. Um, number one problem companies have with CRMs is no one uses them. Right. Why? They're clunky. doesn't meet their needs. Salespeople think they're a burden. Why should I do it? It's just, you know, the overlord is looking over my back to see, am I actually working or not? And that's not the truth. Like there is, there's a, there's a kernel of truth in the fact that yes, management is using this to hold you accountable. And honestly, they're paying you a salary and you should be held accountable. Yeah. Um, if you're doing your job, you have nothing to hide. So why hide? But I think the bigger thing is, unless that data is inside the system, um, that the organization can't effectively grow without knowing how they're growing to that day. Um, and so the key, uh, we have a very, we have an excellent track record of helping organizations actually adopt the technology, which I think is the number one metric that we like to track. What was adoption like at the end? Are people actually using it? You know, we can get into how much more revenue. Like we've had clients who come back to us and say, wow, we found millions of dollars in revenue that we're now tracking that we didn't even know was there before that our own team had originally let fall through the cracks because there was no way of measuring or seeing what that potential revenue opportunity was. Um, and so it, it's literally our business combining people, process, and systems. But I think the number one thing that people tend to struggle with the most is the planning fallacy. Um, uh, Amos, uh, Amos uh, Traversky and Daniel Kahneman, um, they talk about back in the 1970s where people tend to underestimate the level of difficulty it is to complete a project yeah. and they overestimate their ability to do it. And oftentimes because they have very little to compare against. 
Maybe yeah. they've only done one or two. And they're like, how hard can it be? Push a few buttons. You get a CRM set up. You're like, well, you got a thousand sales reps, tons of process. Like it's not that yeah. easy. And they tend to us underestimate how long it even takes to think through all the processes to be able to successfully set up a system. And so we try and educate our clients. There's generally more to it than just pushing a bunch of buttons. Anyone can do that. We really pride ourselves on being process oriented and thinking through the appropriate customer journey, business process, business process map that needs to be built out. And what are all the steps in, in between? Because that's what's going to lead to success for everyone. Um, and that's why we, we lead with people. It all comes down to their requirements. What are they trying to solve for? What's that end state going to look like for them? And then how do we close the gap between where they are now, and where they want to be in the future? You know, you mentioned some good point, some really good points around um, not just CX or customer experience, but but general managing of customer expectations, right? So, yes. so how do you, how do you manage? customer expectations while also implementing major changes in their business process or the way they, not just business process, but the way of working at the human level and the business process level. You got to listen. And what I mean by listen is you got to take the time to understand their stories. What are the user stories? What are the requirements? Making sure you're talking to the teams, making sure they're feeling involved and part of the process. Sometimes it's just about how people feel. Were they told to use the CRM or was their input um, uh, or did we take their input and actually apply it to the build out and the process? And, you know, if you're not listening, you're just doing, you're not going to be successful. Yeah. Um, and it is a lot of people management. Um, you know, our people not only manage the project, they manage the clients. Uh, you know, when clients are four to five, six weeks late getting us information, but still expect us to complete the project on time, that's a real miss. Because we had to communicate that to the client that, hey, listen, this project's going to be delayed. You're missing this deadline to get us the information. We can't guarantee it's going to be completed on time. Um, it's all about expectation setting. Like it starts on the sales process, like setting the expectation for the timeline it takes. And if someone says, why does it take three to five weeks to do the initial phase? And say, listen, if it was up to us. We can do it all in one day. Yeah. But we're realists. We have to get your people in a room. We have to organize all the questions. People are going to want to give their, their two cents. Um, so we know it's going to take three to five weeks. Just scheduling alone has nothing to do with us. We always tell our clients, our timeline has very little to do with us. It has to do with you guys. And it goes back to that, you know, planning fallacy, um, that, uh, and, and really understanding that most people, just like I said, underestimate how long things are going to take to complete. And it's our job to help them understand why it's going to take this long to complete. It's not the more people make a project go faster, the more people make the project go slower. And I think a lot of people miss like, hey, that we'll put second. 15 people on this project. You know, it's like, okay, well, let's add 15 times 15. <laughs> now we just went to like 10x the amount of time it's going to take because everyone needs an opinion. You're kidding. So when you add additional opinions and emotions and attitudes and people to something, it adds to the complexity? Crazy, right? That's novel. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> and and then it also depends upon who your um, sponsor is inside the organization. Yeah. Are they taking ownership from a project management perspective or are they completely, you know, not doing much? Um, and so the more involved they are, the more they can be an advocate for us internally, the faster the project can move. 
the better they are corralling people, the better they are organizing, getting approvals. Like this is how projects move faster. Uh, organizations just tend to, you know, most organizations are not technology organizations, even if they are, they're not CRM, they're not professional services, yeah. you know, um, they, they get a deadline from high above and say, Hey, we got to do it by this date. And you're like, well, how did we come up with that date? Is this arbitrary? Yeah. It's just because it's a nice to have, is this a realistic date? And a lot of clients sometimes don't want to hear that. They're like, well, it should be easy. Well, have you done this before? And you know, that's where we, and our best clients are the ones who've actually been through these projects. So we've actually had experience. Those are our best clients all day, every day. Um, so, you know, just, just from our perspective, but yes, more people does not mean faster projects. So how do you evaluate the, uh, the success of an implementation or, you know, what, what metrics do you prioritize around implementation success? Well, one is adoption. Um, you know, so are we actually seeing the adoption that we were expecting for it? Um, two, we do try and look at revenue attribution and sense like, Hey, what is this system doing for organization? Are they going up into the right? Now there's a lot of reasons why a client may be going up into the right. Maybe it's their product mix. Maybe it's their sales process. Maybe it's something else. We can't take all the credit, but we know we're a part of the equation. It's kind of like a spoke in the wheel, you know, not it's, it's a combination of all of them, not necessarily one particular factor that's leading the organization to be successful. Um, when you're dealing with technology, sometimes it's harder to come back and say, Hey, here's the impact. Intuitively, everyone knows, Oh, great. If I have a system that manage my sales process, I should be able to generate more sales because I can actually hold people accountable and give them the sales enablement tools so they can do their job faster. Um, but it's not always intuitive. Um, oftentimes there's kind of three different level levers you can pull when you're looking at technology. One, um, this is a cost saving. Are we simply seeing cost savings because we're switching from one application to another? Um, the second one, when you look at, for example, is this driving revenue? How much more revenue is going to drive because we have a better customer experience or, you know, uh, there's better communication with clients. It's just an overall, uh, better way of doing business. And the third one is in productivity improvements. Okay. How much of a force multiplier was this for your team? You were uh, mentioning to us, you can't handle the leads coming into the business because you don't have enough bodies. So we put together a system to start managing lead flow. And now all of a sudden you you have 10 sales reps who were maybe overwhelmed. So now you're like, Oh, wow, we, we have extra capacity because we're so much more effective and efficient on what we do. So those are kind of the three levers we look at when we're saying how successful and what this is going to do for the client in terms of um, return on investment for them. One one of the things that I um, was always really impressed by since I met you and since I got introduced to OBO was um, the way that you train people to implement consistently or the training program that that you've developed. Um can you talk a little bit about that and how it contributes to the success of your team and, and ultimately to your clients as well? Yeah, we're really proud um, to say that about 30% of our team has gone through our residency program. And very early on, we realized that the talent that we need out there generally isn't out there. And we just don't want to hire someone because, quote, they have the experience. A lot of people who have the experience, you wouldn't hire them if they didn't have the experience in the sense like just based upon the nature of the person you're interviewing and talking to. Our philosophy was we can go out and find the smartest, brightest people and train them on what we do. 
And then within about a period of four to six months, they can be just as effective as someone who maybe has five to 10 years of experience. And so what we did is we developed a residency program that basically takes them through everything that we do, helps them get up to speed as a consultant, um, and teaches them the industry. Uh, so they may have, but what we're looking for is we're looking for people who've shown accomplishment before coming. Um, maybe they were in engineering, maybe they were in another IT space, maybe they were, um, you know, a, a teacher or someone who's just shown excellence in what they've done. We're much more interested in the character and intelligence of the person we're hiring than the experience they necessarily bring to the table. One of the things we have found is we do like people who are career changers. Um, they tend to know what they want. Uh, they tend to appreciate the opportunity more than, say, someone straight out of college who hasn't experienced the world yet. I'm not saying they're bad. We've had great, great people out of college. And to this day, they're some of our leaders in our organization um, who've been with us for over seven years. And I wouldn't trade them for the world. But we do find that people who have some sort of real-world experience are more adaptable. And then they're also able to somewhat apply what they've learned before to this job, those soft skills that you can't necessarily teach. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And how long have you guys had that in place? Uh, two years now. Um, we, we try and run it. We had, we didn't run the, the, the winter one, but we essentially run it about three times a year, uh, whether it's uh, spring, summer, or fall. So we'll be launching another one, uh, I believe, this uh, summer. I think we're a little bit too late for the spring program. Um, it took a long time to develop it, about six months to develop the residency sure. program. It includes practicum, training, classroom opportunity. It, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, that's one of those things that is a long-term payoff beyond what you could possibly imagine at first. But a lot of hard that's work correct. at first. That's correct. Yeah. All right. I got one more question before we hop into our final five. And it's, it's, uh, it's really about your vision for the future of Obo. What's, you know, what's, what's next on the horizon? Well, I think as an organization, you know, we, we've always done an excellent job with projects. Um, and, but that also means we're more, more project based and we are we'll quote recurring revenue based. Um, so we've been definitely saying we want to be more than just a service organization. We want to be a solution organization. Um, an analogy I like to use is, you know, right now a client comes to us and say, Hey, here's our strategy. You know, can you guys go ahead and build it? And then we're going to pass it off to someone else to run it. Um, and so we've been kind of that centerpiece. So maybe the analogy I like to use is building a plane. Right now we build the plane. Someone else designs it. Someone else flies it. We build it. We want to kind of own that entire process from helping the client come up with the strategy to building the technology stack that's going to support that strategy, to helping them fly and execute that strategy, yeah. um, and really offering clients solutions versus services. Um, and so as part of that, we've recently launched an agency division, OBO, to handle marketing-related, you know, creative uh, strategic planning, uh, creative services, demand generation, so that as we set up these market automations, CRMs, customer service systems, we have a team that can support that client and help them actually use it to its fullest potential. Um, and then in addition to that, we've been dabbling in AI uh, because we think that's the future. And so we're really creating a fully integrated technology, marketing, AI solutions organization to help companies stay at the forefront and help them innovate, modernize, and really thrive. All right. Well, on podcast number two between OB and OBO, it's going to have to be uh, AI version of Noah Burke. 
talking about <laughs> <laughs> the human version uh, of Noah Bird. It, 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 honestly, I should summarize this whole conversation right now with ChatGPT and call it a day and be like, hey, here we go. This is what we talked about. Here's the gist of it. <laughs> here you go, team. Uh, you know, just take that transcript. <laughs> um, but we got some very cool solutions coming out here in the next um, couple of weeks around AI where you can actually leverage it to develop your own personal AI chatbot. That's terrific. All right. Well, we will stay tuned for all of that. Um, it closes off here with our founder five top, top metric or KPI that you and your team are relentlessly focused on. Just two, I'll say one from sales and one from operations from sales MQLs. How many MQLs are we generating? How many leads have we gotten in from operations is backlog. What does our backlog pipeline look like? That's good. All right. Uh, top tip for growth stage founders like yourself. It's a journey. Um, the There's highs and lows, but there's a point you get to that you get to some sort of sense of stability. Um, relentlessly focus on, I would say, profit. Hmm. Um, you're a pro-serve company. Or an early, if you're a professional services company, you should be making all making money all the way up as you journey go up into the right. You shouldn't sacrifice your earnings for future growth. Mm-hmm. I see that happen to too many professional services companies, and I don't understand why. You should always be focusing on making sure that you're running a profitable, successful business at all times, not just looking at your top line revenue. But are you actually making money? Good one. All right, favorite book or podcast that's helped you to grow as a founder? Um, so Greg Alexander wrote a book called the boutique. Um, and he also has a podcast, uh, collected 54. Um, I'll give him the shout out. I'm part of their group. I think it's awesome. And the reason why I thought of that book is because I've doodled the heck out of that thing, like dog-eared the heck out of it. Like I have notes throughout. So if I'm doing that, then, and that's really for a professional services organization. You tend to know that's a good book. And then um, my second one, which is more of a philosophy, but like on why you work is Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. But that's a beast. Like if you get through that book, one kudos to you, but two, you'll have a voracious appetite once you finish. Like you'll want to keep reading. <laughs> nice. Uh, piece of advice that counters traditional wisdom. You know, I think the biggest piece of advice that counters it is um, raising money and having money. I think the less money you have, the more creative you become. And you have to find novel ways to solve problems that end up being your competitive advantage. Um, You hear countless stories over and over again that well-funded startups, well-funded companies, you can blow through money so fast because you you have the money and you can simply dog-headedly move your way through it because you have all these resources. But you tend to find you're most creative and you can build the biggest moat when you have the least amount of resources at your disposal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of organizations tend to confuse it. Now, once you figure out your product market fit, your, your opportunity, sure, plow money into it and start growing. But I think it's actually a hindrance to have too much money to start well said. All right, last one. What is going to be the title of your autobiography when you've finished and completed and killed it at all you set out to do? 
How I started a second plant company. <laughs> Say that again. <laughs> How I started a second plant company. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a hobby of mine. Uh, it's kind of funny. Like, what would my title autobiography be? Um, you know, it's it's kind of like how I started my second plant company is kind of the journey to why even I look at that as like retirement for me down the road. Like, it's just fun. So it's kind of like you know the beginning beginning journey slash end journey. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's a great question. Honestly, I I, I can't say confidently what it would be yeah. um, in terms of my autobiography title, but uh, Plant Man, I don't know. Oh, As we like started the, yeah. the podcast at the top. Yeah, plant, <laughs> plant Man, not to be confused with, uh, with Ant-Man. Yeah, correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice, dude. All right. Well, uh, Noah, you've given a ton to our listeners today, so I always allow for a little bit of self-promotion at the end here. How can those listening help you out? Awesome. Well, uh, one, we're always looking for great people. So if you're interested, feel free to go ahead and apply. Keep an eye out for our residency program. Spread the word. If you're looking for a HubSpot elite partner, so we're just one of a handful of elite partners worldwide at HubSpot. It's the top tier you can achieve. I think there's maybe 30 of us worldwide. Um, feel free to reach out to us if you need help with your HubSpot integrations, migrations, optimizations. Um, same thing with Salesforce. Uh, we're both a Salesforce partner and Salesforce.org partner, helping out associations, nonprofits. And we're also one of Monday's uh, North American Partner of the Year. And we are also uh, one of their advanced delivery partners. So if you need help setting up Monday, getting the most out of it. More importantly, if you're just looking for an organization to come in and help you figure out the best architecture for how you're going to achieve your goals from a technology perspective, reach out. You don't have to make a decision on what tech stack you use today. We can help you think through that, both from a budget perspective as well as from a um, use perspective. So, um, and last but not least, you know, we got our agency division that's uh, uh, humming along at this point. So we're able to add those creative services. Um, and then we have really cool AI tools coming out. So stay tuned. Um, and uh, I, I think uh, I think it'll be pretty cool. It's going to be really cool and even better. Drive a lot of yes. awesome outcomes for a lot of people. It's it's. Uh, I, I, I think we're going to be saving people hundreds of hours, thousands of hours. Companies are going to really evolve quite a bit with this uh, technology. I have no doubt. All right. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you, Noah? Yeah. Um, first way is they can always visit our website at www.theobogroup.com. Um, also, welcome to send me an email if you'd like, noah at theobogroup.com. Those are generally the best ways. On our website, you can either reach out to us via a form. Um, there's an email on there, or you can even schedule a call directly on one of my team members' calendars if you're interested in our services. All right. Noah Burke, OBO Group. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure for joining us on The Dirt, man. Thanks a ton. Thanks, Jim. Well, I appreciate being here, and hopefully uh, your audience gets some uh, good good tidbits that they're able to apply to themselves. I'm sure you'll get a couple reach-outs at the very least. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. All right, Noah, take care. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.